Sometimes it can be really difficult to appreciate a gift that has been given. Not necessarily because it's a thoughtless gift, uh, not necessarily because even it's a lame gift, but just simply because you can't see it. It's obscured from your sight, and so therein you, you just don't have the ability to appreciate what it is that's been given. Let me give you an example. It's a humorous one, but it makes the point. So some of these uh, gag gift boxes, right? And I don't know how many of you have seen these, these boxes that are made to even more so disguise what it is, the gift. So you, 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 it's already hidden from your sight because of the wrapping. Then you open it, and then the box has this labeling on it that's actually false to what's actually what's inside the box. So I actually was witness to uh, the giving and receiving of one of these uh, a year or two ago. Um, it was the Bathe and Brew box. The bathe, I'm going to read you just some of the labeling. You'll get an idea as, as to what this involves. So it's a multitasker's dream. Brew up some extra time before work. Now you can get caffeine clean. Simply hook up the bathe and brew to your existing water supply, that being the shower head. Add one tablespoon of ground coffee per three minutes of shower time. While you shampoo, the bathe and brew makes free coffee at a rate of one cup per 12 gallons of shower water. Stainless housing stands up to even the harshest of dandruff shampoos. So that's good to know. Good to know. Well, as you can imagine, I'm watching this. I'm confused. Everyone is confused as to what's going on. And the poor recipient of the gift is incredibly confused. And then as time goes by, amused as they begin to, the reality begins to settle into what's going on. The idea, again, being that sometimes, sometimes we cannot appreciate something that's been given to us. Sometimes we cannot appreciate a, a gift that has been bestowed upon us because we can't see what it is. It's obscured, it's hidden from our sight, and that is true not just with bathe and brew. It's also true with the very gift that God has given to his people. Sometimes we can't appreciate them because we can't see the value of what it is. So this is the fourth in a series of four messages, God's gifts to us through Christmas. A few weeks ago, we were looking at justification. Then we looked at sanctification. Then we looked at the indwelling spirit. And now we come to the fourth of the four, authority given to us in spiritual conflict. Authority given to us in spiritual conflict. And with every one of those, in one way or another, we struggle with appreciating what it is that has been given to us. May God have mercy on us and give us eyes to see how glorious and good this gift is. All right, so if you've got a Bible, turn with me to the book of Colossians, Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, we're going to be reading verses 6 through 15 in particular, landing on that very last verse, verse 15. If you're trying to find that in, in your Bible, this is in the New Testament. This is one of Paul's letters. Uh, this is after the Gospels and after Acts. You hit Romans and the Corinthian letters, then Galatians and Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians. It's called Colossians because it was written by Paul to believers in the city or around the city of Colossae, mid-first century, all right? So we're picking up in the second chapter. Obviously, a little bit has happened by this point in terms of his flow of thought. We'll get into that in just a little bit. 
but Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 through 15. Hear now God's word. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Let's pray together. Father, thank you. opportunity to be here this morning in this place at this time. Thank you for this celebratory season in which we walk, we stop, we pause, we look, we wait. Advent, we wait, we look, and we long for the coming, the coming of the Messiah who has come, who is coming, and is coming again. We thank you for the reality of your coming, past and present and future. That is all that we are grounded upon in faith and hope and love. We thank you for your promises. We thank you for your gifts. We thank you for the things we've been able to look at these last few weeks and the reality of these things and how they intersect with the deepest need that we have. We are coming to another one, and we need to hear this. Oh, how we need to hear this. We are blind and deaf to every one of these, and our need for these, so self-assured, so self-confident, so deluded into thinking that we can handle this world, this life on our own. It's not so tough to be a follower of Jesus. How deceived we can be. And indeed, we are. And we ask for your mercy that you would open up our eyes to the danger around us. Ah, but yes, the security we have in Jesus. Help us to see both at the same time. We pray in your name. Amen. Now, let me ask you a question. How did it strike you? Be honest. Don't say it aloud. How did it strike you? Be honest. When you heard me say that this was the fourth of the fourth. Really? Surprise? Um, re- 
that that friend that you invited decided not to come this week? Or maybe horrified and embarrassed that they did. And you're really wondering, where is he going to go with this over the next few minutes? That's understandable. That's quite understandable. Here, here's, I want, would urge you to think with me for a minute. This is who starts this off. There is evil present in this world that defies all explanation in the realms of psychology or sociology or biology or economics or systems theory or whatever one of those good or realms of study you would want to transpose on this question. There is a rea the reality of evil present in this world that those things can't touch because it's too deep. Because it's too deep. It's present at Christmas. It's present at the first Christmas. Now think back, if those of you who've, who've read through the, 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 uh, the narratives, Matthew 2, it's oftentimes referred to as the slaughter of the innocents. Herod's ploy to try and put away, be done with a, a potential rival to his throne. Slaughtering all the boy babies under the age of two in the town of Bethlehem. Do you really think that all that was involved with that was a paranoid politician trying to hold on to his power? Do you think that's all that was? There was a whole lot more going on there with that than just politics and power plays in the hallways, the throne room there in Jerusalem and in the bloody streets of Bethlehem. A whole lot more going on than just, than just that. I mean, we just read it a few moments ago, did we not? Ephesians chapter 6, Dave was reading from that. Ephesians 6 verse 12, could Paul have made it any clearer? For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Could Paul have made it any clearer? Apparently he could have, because that's not how we live. That's not how we think. If you think in terms of the way we do battle with one another, the way we discuss politics, the way we discuss societal trends, the way we get up in one another's grill at the table or on social media, you would think that our enemy is flesh and blood and there's nothing else out there. So you would think. But that's not what Paul says. We need to own that. Friends, right here from the start, we need to own the fact that we have a tendency to downplay the reality of the angelic realm, the angels, and the fallen angels, the demons. We need to own and acknowledge the fact that we have a tendency to downplay that realm, that aspect of reality. reasons, I understand the reasons, I'm right there with you, the, the reasons that we tend to do that are at least twofold. One, because of extremes, the extremes that we have heard and seen people go to in what they say and believe about these things. Yes, of course, there's 
hesitant to go there and talk about it, think about it. And then, of course, because we, we, we want just, you know, in polite company, in sophisticated places, you just don't talk about these things. That's, that's crazy talk. They'll put you in a padded room with a special coat if you start talking too much about these things. So, so we, we think. But the reality is we dare not, if we're going to take the scriptures seriously, which we say we do, we dare not then ignore this. We dare not ignore this, nor dare we refuse the gift. What gift? Amy, so glad you asked. The gift being that we are free, free from demonic domination because we have been given authority in Christ in spiritual conflict. That's the gift. There's a freight train there. We're going to be unpacking it over the next few minutes. Let me say it again. We have, we have been freed. We have been freed from demonic domination because we have authority in Christ in spiritual conflict. Now, to unpack that, there are three different things. If you've got the outline, if you, got, if you printed off the bulletin, that's where we're going over the next few minutes. These three simple ways of getting at that, because there's so much there, so much there in that statement. So the first thing being, what, what are they? These, the demonic realm. What are they? Who are what, or what are we talking about? So there's that. And the second thing is, what has Jesus done? We're going to get into Colossians 2 and some other places as well. What has Jesus done? So what are we talking about? What has Jesus done? And then thirdly, what does this matter? What does this matter? What does this mean for you and I today? All right, so the, let's go. First, what they are. What are we talking about? Here we need to clear away some misconceptions, pull some weeds, get rid of the rocks in the garden. Do have done with these misconceptions. So let's think in terms of the, the origin of the demons and the being of the demons, if I can put it that way. So their origin. What are they? They are fallen angels. That's what demons are. Satan is their leader. Perhaps an archangel of some kind. We're not quite sure. The, 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 the history of this is a little hazy. We're not told all of this. But we are. It, it would seem by implication we could put it this way. There was a fall before the fall. There was an angelic fall before the fall that we read about in, in Genesis 3. So that's their origin. That's where they come from. They, what we say then about their being? What are they? They are creatures. The demons, the fallen angels are creatures, which means they are not eternal. They are not uncreated. They are powerful, but not all-powerful. They are not omni-anything. They are not omnipresent. They are creatures. They are not omniscient. They are creatures. And again, they are not omnipotent, for they are creatures. They have limits. They have limits. And we need to understand that. We need to understand this is what the scriptures are telling us here. What are their purposes? What do they want? What are they about? What is their agenda? They are opposed, absolutely, positively opposed to God's good, glorious purposes on this earth in every way Possible. They stand opposed. They want the glory, if I can put it that way. 
They want the glory. They want the worship. They want the praise. They want the submission. They want the obedience. That's due to the Lord himself. That's what they want. How do they go about it? What are the satanic strategies, the demonic to-do lists? Richard Lovelace, in his book I'd highly commend to you, Dynamics of Spiritual Life, lists five. Five strategies, five ways they go about trying to accomplish this agenda. Still today, still today. One, temptation. Luring us, not just by incidental falls, but down uh, ruinous paths as well. So, temptation. Second, deception. Getting us to believe lies, falsehoods, false doctrine, or perhaps luring us, uh, blinding us, fostering uh, slippery counterfeits. So, temptation, deception, accusation. From the world outside, but also from within, within the church, sowing seeds of division and splintering in our midst. So temptation, deception, accusation, possession, where uh, control and ownership is, is had in a, in a person's life, or perhaps we should say demonization. And we're going to talk about that later. Okay, we're going to put a, put a bookmark on that. We're going to come back to it. Okay. Uh, the, but the fifth, the fifth one, so you have temptation, deception, accusation, possession, and then physical attack. Physical attack. Again, this is something that's real. It's real. It, it, it's, it's real in the world today as w- much as it was in the New Testament era. Where you, you're dealing, you could, could be dealing with emotional or physiological, neurological uh, oppression, struggles, Now, that's not to say, don't hear me say what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that all of that has to do with demons. It's just, it's not that that's the exclusive cause. It's just a potential cause and needs to be acknowledged, needs to be reckoned with. That's what the scriptures show very clearly. So, again, what are we talking about? We're saying this is what they are. This is what they're about. These are fallen angels bent on harm, harm of God's people and his purposes, and we need to face reality and stop playing around. We need to face reality that this is a realm that is, I'm using this word repeatedly, real. This is not mythological. This is not fiction. Look at Jesus. Jesus is teaching. How many times he speaks of the demonic realm in his parables, the warnings that he gives, the way that he prays is impacted and influenced, and not just what he prays, but how he teaches about prayer. You see it all over, just simply so you can say, just with Jesus, is really, that's the right thing to say. So we need to, to, to get real here and let what the scriptures have to say regarding these matters and, and let them move into and impact and, and, and affect and correct our biases, which we have. We have, let me give you examples of two broad, big, broad, 10,000 feet biases. So in the global church in the South, there's a tendency towards dualism in thinking about these things. That is to say, when it comes to the spiritual realm, thinking that there's a tendency towards thinking that you have the demonic realm and God, and they're basically equal powers vying against one another. 
the problem. It's actually not true. And we don't deal with that so much in the global west, the north, if I could put it that way. Ours is not dualism, but denial. Uh, it would be being dulled, dulled into denial because of the enlightenment, in which we think ourselves to be what? Enlightened. And we don't think that there's so much of a spiritual realm to be dealt with, to be thought about, to be uh, lived into. Both of these are equally wrong. It's not like one is better than the other, the dualism of being dulled. They're both wrong and need to be corrected by what the scriptures have to say. Or if I can put it this way, we need balance. We need balance. If you think in terms of the world, the flesh, and the what? Devil. The world, that is to say, our corporate, cultural, systemic, Injustice and evil present. The flesh, our perennial, inward, deep inclination towards rebellion. And the devil, we need to understand that sin and suffering and misery comes about in this age, in this world, through all three. Not just one, not just two, but all three. And that then sets us up for this. Why this good news is so good and why this gift is so good that indeed we've been freed from the demonic domination and given authority in spiritual conflict. That takes us to the second point. What has Jesus done? How can we even say that? How can we even say this? What has Jesus done? Let me, okay, context for Colossians and Colossians 2. Paul is addressing and, and moving right into the face of false teaching there in the church in Colossae. And through the course of chapter 2, he's enumerating the benefits, the blessings that we have in Jesus. And as he gets towards chapter, excuse me, through chapter 2 into verse 15, then he begins to speak to this one. And that's what he says, picking up actually in what he's, he's alluded to already in verse 10, you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. That's not earthly rule and authority. Then getting down to verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. There's rich imagery that Paul is tapping into that his readers would immediately have grabbed hold of and would have deeply resonated with them. Imagery of a military triumph. This was the custom of the time. This is the image that Paul is, is tapping into here. After a victory on the battlefield, a Roman general would come into the streets of Rome, a, a parade of sorts, with that victorious general leading, wearing purple and gold, in a chariot pulled by four horses, trailing behind him the captive army. The generals would be executed and the soldiers would be sold into slavery. That's the custom. That's the way it was in that day. Now, Paul's not defending that. He's just tapping into an image that they knew and understand, understood. And the idea is simply being this, that Jesus is the exalted one. He is the conquering general. He is the king. And in his accomplished work in life, death, and resurrection, 
Satan and his power have been stripped. Absolutely stripped. And ours, as Jesus' followers, are the spoils of war. That's the imagery here. It's quite striking, but that's the way this would have landed on Paul's readers there in Colossae. And this is not the only time you see something like this in, in the scriptures. It's not like this is a one-off in Colossians 2. There's a much larger witness to this that was promised to us from the, the very, 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 can I say it again? Very beginning. Genesis chapter 3. The promise, the first promise. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. This is immediately uh, after the fall, in the context of the fall. These words that the Lord God speaks to Satan himself. In Genesis 3, verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head. That's a fatal blow. And you shall bruise his heel, real, but anything but ultimately fatal. Paul, Paul picks up on this, this very idea, this concept. This is not a forgotten promise. Romans chapter 16, verse 20 is towards the end of that great letter, the book of Romans, Romans 16, 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Or the apostle John, this is towards the end of the New Testament, just a few books before, letters rather, before the book of Revelation. 1 John chapter 3, verses 5 and 8. 1 John chapter 3, verses 5 and 8. John is, is speaking to us, explaining to us, this is why Jesus came. Verse 5, you know that he appeared to, here we go, take away sins. And in him there is no sin, but that's not all he says. You keep reading on down to verse 8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And that's what Paul's talking about in Colossians 2. That's what Jesus has done. Again, his finished work upon the cross and with the empty tomb and rising in his exaltation. This is what he is getting at. And, and Jesus in fact, speaks to this very thing. It's recorded for us there in the Gospels. Matthew 12 is one place that we could look. Uh, this is in the context of an um, argument, I guess you could say, a debate, a discussion, label it however you want, between Jesus and the Pharisees. The Pharisees are accusing Jesus of being in league with Satan, saying, oh, that's how. Okay, clearly you have power. I can't deny that. But now they're, they're, they're impugning him in terms of the source of his power, saying, no, you're in league, you're in partnership with Satan and the demons. And Jesus, in the course of refuting this ridiculous charge, says in chapter Matthew 12, verse 29, how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed, he may plunder his house. Now, this may sound odd to you, but Jesus is describing himself as a burglar. There's a good shock value there, right, with that analogy, that story. He's saying that he has broken into the house, Satan's house, and bound him, constrained him, rendered him powerless, 
and now he's taking his stuff. What he thinks is his that, by the way, is actually Jesus's. was his all along. Satan is a squatter. Satan is a squatter. And in this case, there are no squatters left. That's what Jesus is saying. He has bound the strong one, rendered a decisive victory, crushing the head of the serpent. And one day when he returns, that victory is going to be full and final and triumphant. This is what Jesus has done, and Satan's doom is sure. This is what Jesus has done, and Satan's doom is sure. Colossians 2.15. In the words of Gandalf the Grey, that, my friends, is an encouraging thought. This news is meant to embolden us. This news is meant to encourage us. As we go out, as Jesus' ambassadors, as his followers, as his disciples into this world, yes, yes, our enemy is real. Yes. And he rages. Yes, indeed he does. And he stands opposed, resisting every aspect of the advancement of our king's realm. has been bound. He has been constrained, which means ultimately, yes, he can lash and yes, he can bruise, but ultimately he cannot harm. In the ultimate sense, he cannot harm we God's people. So again, the gift, what is the gift? We've been freed, freed from demonic domination and given authority in Christ in spiritual conflict, and that is good news. Yeah, that's what they are. That's what Jesus has done. What does all this mean? And how's it? How does it become ours? We've alluded to all this to, to this already. Uh, quite a bit, quite a bit. Dave touched on it actually, and but he was reiterating it there from Ephesians. And now we see it actually coming up, right up in our face here in Colossians two. The repetition, union with Christ. Union with Christ. Paul clearly does not want his readers to miss this. It's a strong theme in all of Paul's writings, especially so in the book of Colossians, and especially so in this chapter of Colossians. Seven times. You see it in the verses that we read earlier from uh, chapters 2, verses 6 through 15. Uh, let me just highlight it for you in case you missed it, okay? So verse 6. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him. So keep going. Rooted and built up in him and established in the faith. Skipping down to verse 9. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Verse 10. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Verse 11. In him. You get a sense there's a pattern here. You also have, were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, skipping down to verse 12, having been buried with him, maybe different word, but same concept, in baptism, and then down to verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. What does this mean? Clearly it's significant. Clearly it's 
vital in Paul's understanding and longs that you, we would understand it as well. It means that we have been, put it this way, disciples of Jesus have been united to Jesus. Followers of Christ have made, been made one with Christ. He is our representative, our, our head, standing in our place. As we say all the time around here, but it, this is what it means. This is how it connects. Living the life we should have lived in our place and dying the death we deserve to die in our place. Mysterious? Yes. Unreal? No. We have been made one with Jesus. And that is the source of all these gifts. Justification, sanctification, the indwelling spirit, and, and authority in the spiritual realm. In Christ, because we are in, made one with him. That is, an, can I put it this way? That is an objective reality that we need to lay hold of and live out, live out of subjectively every day all through the day. In everything that we are about. Which then takes us from union with Christ to dependence on Christ. Okay? Especially when you think in terms of spiritual warfare, spiritual conflict. We should expect opposition. Not get, not be shell-shocked. Not be stunned. Not be surprised. Who are we one with? Who are we followers of? From Satan's perspective, we are part of an invading army. And he wants to hold his territory. So of course we should expect resistance and opposition. Satan knows every one of the texts that we have read. He refuses to yield. He refuses to give. And so we should expect his hatred. We should expect his hostility. Absolutely so. Peter would tell us that. Remember when Jesus warned him? Satan longs and did sift you like wheat. Years later, Peter, likely reflecting on this, wrote in a letter we know as 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 5, 1 Peter 5, verses 8 and 9, the Apostle Peter writes, the fisherman writes, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. As Paul says, we should not think it strange. We should not think it strange. We should expect such opposition and at the same time have assurance in that opposition. There should be an expectation of opposition and for the follower of Jesus, assurance in that opposition as well. Okay, I said I was going to come back to it. Here we go. This word that's oftentimes used, possession. 
In our English translation, in the Gospel accounts, it's a bad translation. It's traced back to the King James. Tyndale and the others were doing the best they could at the time. Just grant them that. Praise God for the work that they did. But the better way to translate that would not be possession in the sense of ownership or control. The better way to translate that word would be demonization, which is a broad spectrum. A very broad spectrum that can have a connotation of ownership and control. And you read of that in the gospel accounts. Of course we do. And today, and today, it can happen. But not to the follower of Jesus. Not to the follower of Jesus. We are owned by another. And he that is in us is stronger than the one who is in the world. Yes, we can be tempted. Of course we can. And be accused. And be deceived. And be oppressed. But never possessed. Never controlled in the sense that we read of in the gospel accounts. And by the way, who freed those individuals from those possessions? The king, the great exorcist himself. This is the assurance that we have, friends. Yes, the expectation of opposition, but the assurance that we can have in in that opposition as well, because we belong to another. And again, Paul couldn't have made it any clearer than he did in verse 15, where he says he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Or, as Martin Luther put it so beautifully, the devil is God's devil. I can uh, go back into church history and bring forward to your attention another uh, word picture. John Bunyan, in the Pilgrim's Progress, reads you this great little scene here that, that captures so much of this so, so beautifully. Uh, and if you children, if you've got a copy of The Dangerous Journey, this is beautifully captured visually in the, the artwork that's done in there. But this in the original, this is uh, just a quotation from Bunyan's own words. So I saw in my dream that he, that is Christian, had made haste and went forward, that if possible he might get lodgings there. Now, before he had gone far, he entered into a very narrow passage, which was about a furlong off the porter's lodge. And looking very narrowly before him, as he went, he espied two lions in the way. Now, thought he, I see the dangers that mistrust and timorous were driven back by. The lions were chained, but he saw not the chains. Then he was afraid and thought also himself to go back after them, that is, mistrust and timorous. For he thought nothing but death was before him. But the porter at the lodge, whose name is Watchful, perceiving that Christian made a halt as if he would go back, cried unto him, saying, Is your strength so small? Fear not the lions, for they are chained and are placed there for trial of faith where it is and for discovery of those that had none. Keep in the midst of the path. No hurt shall come unto you. Then I saw that he went on, trembling for fear of the lions, but taking good heed to the directions of the porter. He heard them roar, but they did him no harm. Then he clapped his hands and went on till he came and stood before the gate where the porter was. 
So what does this mean for us as we engage in spiritual warfare? Dave read earlier, Ephesians 6, says, put on the armor of God. Go back and read it again. Read the gospel accounts of how Jesus faced down Satan in the wilderness in the context of his temptations. Or if I can put, just put it this way, spiritual warfare is a broad umbrella. It's a broad umbrella, a broad term, at least it ought to be broad, within which is the everyday struggle we all have to live a godly life. To love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and our neighbor as ourselves. That is spiritual warfare on Monday morning that we dare not think we can do in our own strength. Right there, we need these promises. We need the Holy Spirit. We need to be people of prayer that we would be warriors in this spiritual battle on every single front. Again, we've been freed, freed from this demonic domination. We have authority in Christ in this spiritual conflict. Now, no few of you, I don't doubt, knowing that I am the C.S. Lewis fan that I am, are wondering at what point is he going to quote from the screw tape letters? <laughs> You've arrived. This is in the preface. This speaks to the very struggles that we have. Uh, going back to what I was talking about, our biases that we need to own and deal with and acknowledge. Lewis writes this in the very start. There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. That touches on this pretty well. But before we wrap up this series and the gifts that God gives at Christmas, I want to read another Lewis quote from a completely different book. It's his classic work, Miracles touching on the reality, the wonder of the incarnation. Here's what Lewis writes. In the Christian story, God descends to reascend. He comes down, down from the heights of absolute being into time and space, down into humanity, down to the very roots and seabed of the nature he has created. But he goes down to come up again, and bring the ruined world up with him. One has the picture of a strong man stooping lower and lower to get himself underneath some great complicated burden. He must stoop in order to lift. He must almost disappear under the load before he incredibly straightens his back and marches off with the whole mass swaying on his shoulders. That's the incarnation. That's what we need. And that's who we have. And that's what it is that he has come and done. 
This is what makes it possible for the guilty and the shamed to be justified. This is what makes it possible for those who know themselves to be in bondage to sin to be sanctified. This is what makes it possible for those who are alone and feel abandoned to know the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. This is what makes it possible to know those who know themselves to be powerless before the worst of enemies to have authority in spiritual conflict. And all of this is in Christ. We have but to receive and rejoice. That's it. We have but to receive and to rejoice. These are his good gifts to his people. Can we pray? Lord, this is what we need. And in you, Lord Jesus, this is what we have. Not in ourselves, not in our heritage, our history, our achievements. Not in what we have abstained from or labored towards, but only in you. Oh, would you help us to know this and to lay hold of it. We are indeed in need of every one of these gloriously good gifts. Would you please have mercy on us and help us to see the ways in which we shortchange any of these? Would you help us to be specific in our acknowledging and owning and confessing that and then knowing that this of this too we are forgiven? Help us not to be so simplistic in our assessment of our needs, but rather to see that we have a great solution and a great Savior and great cause to rejoice because of all that you have done for us, even for us, even for the likes of us. Praise your name.